listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the show. We have a really special guest today. He is actually an author of the book, The Perfect Investment. He is the managing director of a couple of real estate funds at Wellington's Capital, and he's also the host of a podcast called How to Lose Money. He's a I'm actually kind of starstruck today because I've been following our guest on Bigger Pockets and watching. I've read his book, I've listened to his podcast, and I've watched plenty of his webinars over the last couple of years. So thank you so much for joining us today and welcome, Paul Moore. Oh, shucks. Thanks, Sterling. Man, I, that's really kind of you to say that. It's great to be here, really. I'm super impressed with what you've accomplished in the last couple of years. So I'm looking forward to this interview. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have you. So the first question we typically ask on our program is, why should we listen to you? So I've given a, a kind of a, a little cliff note version of what you've accomplished in the real estate investing world, but can you elaborate a little bit on that for our yeah, guests? Why should you listen to a guy who started a podcast called How to Lose Money anyway? That's kind of crazy. But well, uh, So I'm just curious, why did you call it How to Lose Money? Yeah, you know, Sterling, I went to these conferences for years. It wasn't just in real estate. It was in other things I was involved with in the past. I was a a serial entrepreneur, also known as a shiny object chaser, you know, about 25 years ago and before I really dialed in on commercial real estate. And I'd be at these conferences and I would hear these guys up there just promoting, telling all their amazing accomplishments. And I would watch the people around me. Sometimes they were at round tables. And these people would just kind of slump down in their chairs and I could just see that they were feeling and they said, I'll never be like that guy. I'll never be that successful. Well, Sterling, I got to know some of these speakers over the years and found out they had the same pain, same struggles, same losses and terrible, you know, crushing defeats, insecurities and fears that all the other guys sitting at those tables had, but they just didn't talk about it. And, you know, I finally, I said, you know, if I ever get in a position to talk publicly, I'm going to talk about failures, pain, fear, loss along the road to success to give people hope. And when people talk about those things, other people realize, hey, I have the same problems. I can get there too. And it gives people a lot of hope. And that's what we're all about. Absolutely. No, and I couldn't agree with you more. So, you know, we're both obviously big bigger pockets fans and I love that, you know, their messages without all the hype. That's why I, I include a question in, in my podcast, you know, tell us about your biggest disaster. Because yeah. we don't in any way want to just sell like it's all sunshine and rainbows out there because there's a lot of hard days and we definitely want to be honest with everybody what they're getting into. Yeah, that's for sure. So to go back to your question though, so I started a company right out of, I I got an MBA and then I went to Ford Motor Company for five years, realized I really needed to be an entrepreneur. I loved Ford, but I started my own company, sold it to a publicly traded firm. My partner and I sold it for 2.9 million when I was 33. And I thought that I was now a full-time investor, but I actually was a full-time speculator because I actually did not know the difference between investing and speculating. You know, investing, Sterling, is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. Speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And unfortunately, I ended up speculating a lot. I made a lot of money, but I lost a lot of money as well. 
I'll talk more about that later. But it, when I got into real estate, I started flipping houses, doing lease option sandwiches, rent to owns, small multifamily, did ground up, built a lot of houses, did a subdivision. And then I finally jumped into commercial. And when I got into commercial in 2011, about almost nine years ago, I have never wanted to do anything else because in single family, as you know, the value of your home is based on comps. It's based on the neighborhood. But in multifamily or other commercial real estate, the value is based on a formula. And the formula goes something like this. Value is the income divided by the expected rate of return. In other words, it's the net operating income, not including your debt service, divided by the capitalization or the cap rate. And if you can drive up the numerator, or if you can find a way to compress the denominator in that value formula, you can drive massive increase in asset value and even more increase in equity value, assuming you're using safe leverage. So I love commercial real estate, and I think that the reason that you and I and almost everybody in the Forbes 400 wealthiest people in the world are involved in commercial real estate is because of this opportunity to make massive profits this way and create real wealth. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. I do have a question. I'm pretty clear on, on how we can increase the net operating income and, and divide yeah. it by the capitalization rate. The clarification I'd like is, A, how stable are the capitalization rates? Is that something that's going to fluctuate largely throughout you know, the length of your project? And what's the best place to find the real capitalization rate? Yeah, so the cap rate is the expected rate of return that investors would expect, that is, in a given market at a given time for an asset like yours. And so for a class A multifamily in Baton Rouge, I'm guessing that would be, you know, for a brand new class A, it might be, I'm just guessing, 5.5%, which would be the rate of return investors would expect for an asset like that at this time. For a class B, let's say a 1985 apartment building, I would expect in Baton Rouge, it might be six and a half percent. And then for a class C or D, it might be seven and a half to eight percent or more, which means they would expect a higher rate of return to deal with the hassle and the instability of a lower class asset. The way to find that, to answer your question, is to talk to appraisers, commercial appraisers, that is, commercial brokers, commercial lenders, and other syndicators and real estate investors in the market and get a feel for what other assets have been sold for in the recent year or so. Okay, great. Well, it sounds like you have a tremendous amount of experience. I don't even know where to start, but you you'd mentioned that you started off speculating. Now, when you say you started off speculating, is that are you talking about the flips and the developments and all of that, or not so much? Um, okay. When I get into my worst and best deal later, I'll tell you about a big speculation I did in development, which it can be that way for sure. I was mainly talking about other assets outside of real estate. For example, I invested with a guy in Charlotte, North Carolina, who claimed he had a way to do this foreign exchange thing where he was making 3% profit a month. Well, 
I think he's in year 17 now <laughs> of his 158-year prison sentence, and he oh, still wow. won't tell the uh, 2,000 investors where he hid the $18 million offshore. I also got involved in a wireless internet company many years ago, and I didn't know anything about wireless internet. I also sent money down to the bottom of a 10,000-foot hole in the ground, also known as an oil well, and it never came back out. And so there were things <laughs> like that that I consider speculating. Real estate, by its nature, generally doesn't have to be speculative. You can add enough risk through debt or development to make it speculative, but in general, the kind of real estate that we do now, Wellings Capital, is very much not speculative. It's more of an investment. So can you tell us about your first commercial deal, how you dove into that, what it looked like? Yeah, so I won't count the 1999 ground-up development that I got involved in in Colorado Springs. That actually went very well. That was just a debt deal. But my first commercial deal that I helped oversee was in 2011. We built a ground-up multifamily that was Watford City, North Dakota. We went there actually to invest in oil and gas, and we noticed that there were trucks, pickup trucks and other kinds of trucks and cars lining the roads, people sleeping in their cars in Walmart and sleeping in their trucks along the side of the road. There's just not enough housing for all the people there for the oil boom, the Bakken oil boom that started in 2009 or so. And so we were involved in real estate. We decided to build housing for them. And so we very quickly, and I mean in weeks, we had acquired 75 acres and we built a multifamily facility. We did it modularly. So literally within a few months, we had those units occupied. And we were charging, I think, 11 times the average rate per square foot of multifamily in the U.S. And we were staying full. I mean, just to kind of dial that in, we, in general, you can expect to get about a dollar a square foot uh -huh. for multifamily in the heartland of the U.S. In other words, if I had an 800 square foot apartment, class B, I might be able to charge about 800 bucks for that. We had 300 square foot units. They were really nice efficiency units, you know, like studio units. And we were charging 40, I think $4,100 a month. And we were staying full because the oil companies were paying this. There were 18,000 job openings in North Dakota and there just wasn't enough housing for these guys. So we did that for a couple of years. We sold that for a really nice profit. And that was How many the units? first commercial deal. How many I think we had 150, I think we had room for 150, I will say men, because I, I don't think we had any lady clientele there. It was just a whole lot of rough, you know, oil workers and engineers and things like that. Awesome. Now, how do you put together a deal of that size? We got a handful of friends who invested alongside of us. We put a lot of our own money in and we got some really favorable debt from a bank in, I think it was in Nebraska that funded us. Awesome. Well, that sounds like uh, quite a, quite a first uh, stab at commercial. Yeah. So, so where did you go from there? How did you, how did you scale, scale up from there? So what my partner in that actually said, you know, basically if this worked well, a Hyatt hotel should work better. So we built a Hyatt hotel in the 
closest nearby city, Minot, North Dakota, and everything went wrong. And so actually that was his project. He was virtually 100% owner on that. He pulled together a whole bunch of funds on other projects he had sold, other companies he had built and sold over the years. And it was a really, really difficult time for him. But I was involved with that for a while, helping him get linked up with Hyatt, helping him do staffing and marketing. And then I moved into, I actually went and got a mentor to really quickly jump up my learning in syndication and multifamily. And that was great. I spent a year with a mentor and then who jumped is, into class who, B multifamily. Can I ask who the mentor yeah. was? Yeah, it's a company called 37th Parallel. Yep. They're I've based seen in Richmond, Virginia, and they're not cheap. But I, I tell you what, I can pick up the phone any day or email them any day now, six years later, and still get answers. I got an email from them yesterday asking a question on a question I asked. And so there it's a lifetime deal with them and they really do follow through. They're amazing. Awesome. That's good to hear. I hear, you know, so many people are doing the mentorship programs and a lot of people balk at the idea, but I've just talked to so many successful real estate investors that have mm-hmm. gone that avenue and just said that the value you get out of it is, is just unmeasurable. Yeah, it really is. I tell you, it was tremendous. And uh, so I went out, our company, we started Wellings Capital and we tried to start finding deals and uh, we were beating our head up against the wall. What kind of uh, deals were you looking for? We were looking for class B, value add, multifamily. And the competition was so intense, you know, I'm in my 50s and I decided I really didn't want to take big risks, did not want to overpay. So I found myself getting outbid almost constantly or just passing on deals from the get-go. So we, we did buy some multifamily, but we, over the next you know, several years, I've written quite extensively on this on bigger pockets we decided we needed to both expand and contract our focus and what i mean by that is we expanded from multifamily only out into adding self-storage and mobile home parks we contracted in the sense that we also decided we were going to narrow our focus and only raise money for these deals we weren't going to be the operator because Honestly, Sterling, there were so many great operators out there that had teams, experience, track record that had done this for years or decades, and we decided it'd be better to partner with them by bringing money to them. Got it. So you you have you have operators in this self storage and the mobile home park space, and you partner with them by by raising the capital. Yeah, that's right. Awesome. Awesome. So, anyway, so just to be clear, we're a syndicator ourselves. We put together a fund and the fund invests in their deals. Okay. Good deal. So can you tell us about your highlights and your lowlights? That's the next part of our show. So typically we ask our guests to pick, you know, what their best home run knockout of the park deal was and then something that went terribly wrong. From a previous conversation, it sounds like you've you've got the same deal on both sides of that. Yeah. I I mean, I have, I mean, I think the thing that I would actually pick as my very favorite home run would be what we're doing right now, the Wellings Capital Income Fund, where we're, you know, investing in a diversified group of operators, assets, several asset classes. But the funner story to tell is the deal that went terribly wrong. So it was 10 years after I had sold our company to a publicly traded firm 
it was exactly 10 years to the month later, I had a million and a half dollars in my bank account at the beginning of that decade. And at the end of the decade, I had two and a half million dollars in debt. And that was actually all tied to real estate. And unfortunately, one of the real estate deals that was causing me the most headache was a five acre waterfront parcel that I was subdividing into five one acre tracks. And it would be five waterfront lots that in their heyday, you know, in 2003, four, five, would have possibly sold for 400,000 plus per lot. And I had about 860,000, I think, in, in this property. And I found out it could not be subdivided. That was the speculative nature of this. I basically was counting on the county to pave the road out front, which they had said they might do, and actually make this into a state-maintained road, which would allow me to subdivide this five-acre parcel into five one-acre parcels. Well, that didn't happen. And of course, in the fall of 2007 and going into the winter of 2007 and eight, we had no idea we were about to go down this, you know, shoot down into the <laughs> abyss of 2008. Yeah. We knew that there was a problem in the economy. We assumed the worst of it was over. And of course, you, if you can try to remember what it felt like then, we were thinking, well, 2007 has been really, really slow. Maybe the worst is over. And of course, you have other people saying, you know, the sky is falling and we're about to go under the new world order or whatever, yeah. you know, <laughs> and not even, you know, buy silver and gold and get your guns. And so I was hearing both of those things and I had this two and a half million dollars in debt. Well, my business partner actually came to me around that time and said, hey, I can't make half of these interest payments anymore. You're on your own. And he signed it all over to me. And I said, oh, thank you. We're still really good friends, by the way. But um, <laughs> at any rate, I said, uh, okay, well, that's fine. We'll figure this out. And so one day I was sitting, I had this practice of meditating every morning, and I was sitting in my chair thinking, uh, what am I supposed to do now? You know, here I am stuck. And I had this sense, this question came to my mind what would George Mueller do? Now, George Mueller was a guy in England. He lived throughout the 1800s, and he housed over 10,000 orphans in total over his lifetime. And he did it through these crazy, he would do these outrageous things, like he never asked for a dime from anybody, yet he raised what some people believe would be between a quarter and half a billion dollars in today's dollars. And he never asked one person or told one person what he needed. He just trusted it would all happen. It would all come in. He lived a life of prayer and faith. And I'm like, man, what would George Mueller do? Well, first of all, he wouldn't be in debt. So I was already in trouble with that point. But I realized if he would have been in debt, he would have done something outrageous to get out of debt. And so I had a couple of friends around that time met with me at a local fast food restaurant, and they said, hey, it looks like you're in big trouble. Are you going to declare bankruptcy? I said, no, I'm going to give my way out of debt. <laughs> and that went over really well. And then I told my wife and kids we had the same thing. And so we went on this adventure January 1st, 2008, again, not knowing how bad things were about to be. We began to give a set amount every week to charities and nonprofits and church, things we really cared about. 
about four weeks later, I met a real estate developer at a restaurant and he said, hey, you ought to try this to subdivide your five acres. And I said, oh no, I know about that law. That won't work for me. He said, well, you ought to give it a try. And I had this light bulb moment, Sterling, where I realized, oh, oh my goodness. So I, I went and sat in front of the county planning and zoning people about two days later with my surveyor who was kind of had his face buried in his hands like I'm so embarrassed to be here with this crazy cockamamie idea and I told the lady I said I think your law would allow me to subdivide this into five lots and here's how and she looked up over her glasses with a slight smile and then you know just shaking her head going I can't believe it. I've worked here for decades and you just found a loophole that nobody else has ever found in our law. And she goes, yeah, you can do that. Nobody could stop you. And so I ended up subdividing the land. There was a lot of work left, a whole lot of money spent, a lot of hours and a lot of you know problems with financing and all kinds of other things. But in the very, very worst weeks of the recession, just to punctuate how powerful the story is, in September and October, August, September, and October of 2008, I sold off four of those five lots, and we ended up completely debt-free in 13 months. Nice. Even, even paid off our house. Nice. Yeah, it was crazy. What a great story to remember for my kids to watch this too, you know? I'm sure it was painful going through, but it's uh, a lot better to look back on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So what advice would you give to all of those investors that are out there getting started or maybe that have gotten started kind of dipping their toe in the water, but they're looking to scale or maybe, you know, a lot of times we talk about the full-time professional that, that yeah. doesn't think they really have time to dedicate their, their life to, you know, active yeah. investing. What advice and what strategies would you recommend for all of them? I got seven different paths. I just wrote a book about self-storage investing. There's not a really well done book about self-storage investing overview I that I know of. And so I wrote one. And in that, I actually outlined seven paths anybody can take to get involved in commercial real estate investing. I will try to go through those very quick. And then I'll answer your other question. The seven paths would be number one, to do something similar to what Brandon Turner calls stacking, which is working your way up. Buy, buy a duplex, sell it, get a fourplex, fill it up, sell it, buy an eightplex, and just work your way up. And that works. Uh, I know somebody who did that, and they're now like at $16 million in assets. So a second path would be to be a deal finder for a syndicator and partner with them in that way. A third path would be to be a money finder. And I want to put a huge caveat in here. It's very, very risky to do that. You need to get your broker-dealer license and do that legally, not just try to, to wink and get a commission for raising money when you're not supposed to do that. Now, now if, you, if you raise money and then join the general partnership, are you allowed to do that? Yes, if you legitimately join the general partnership. Okay. But if you just get paid to raise money, then it's not legal. And we won't, yeah, we won't do that. A fourth path would be if you're wealthy already to get a team around you and just go big, just jump in to buy large multifamily or large commercial real estate. And that's, I know it's not valid for most people. A fifth path is get a job. And that might include getting a college degree. It might include getting a job with a property manager, an asset manager, 
a commercial broker or a commercial lender. Those would be the four types of jobs I would recommend. You know, one of the largest multifamily guys in America, Rick Graff, with Pinnacle Properties, CEO, he started as a porter in college, you know, just basically like a janitor at a multifamily property and worked his way up. And so it is possible to get a job and work your way into the business that way. A fifth path would, was that five? I think the next path, whatever that is, would be, <laughs> be a passive investor. And I'm going to get back to that path in a minute. And then the seventh path or last path would be to get a coach or a mentor. Now, those are two different things. You can get a paid coach like 37th Parallel, Joe Fairless, a lot of these guys who you can pay and they'll help you and even partner in your deals in many cases. That's a paid coach. An unpaid mentor would be where you go down to a local company that's a syndicator and you say, look, I'm really good at whatever, Excel, or I'm really good at internet marketing or web design or whatever. I'll work for you for free if you will just teach me the business and allow me to, to gain access to your brain and your team. And, you know, so basically you become really valuable to them and they'll eventually likely pay you if you do <laughs> that for very long. And so that's the uh, pass. You asked, what about professionals who are trying to moonlight? I'm, I just wrote an article for Bigger Pockets. It said, real estate investors, why do you continue to multitask? I talk about the evils of multitasking, how it can cause brain damage and hurt <laughs> your income, hurt your relationships, even wind you, even land you in jail if you don't be careful, you know, if, you know, if you're texting and driving, for example. Then I said, you know, if you're a highly paid professional, you should really consider not being a real estate investor on the side, at least not an active real estate investor. In fact, CEO of Bigger Pockets, Scott Trench, just wrote an article that came out, I think, over the weekend, saying if you're a well-paid professional, an IT person, a dentist, a doctor, a lawyer, you should probably stay with your day job and then outsource your investing through a syndicator. And so that's, that's the path of passive investing. It doesn't have to be completely passive. You can get involved. You, can, you should probably fly there, meet with them, get to know the syndicator, get to see how they treat their employees, their staff, their investors, their spouse, the waiter. You should do a lot of vetting on the front end. But once you really trust an operator, you can invest with them. And then the effort you exert after that would be pretty much walking to the mailbox to get your quarterly reports and your distributions. Now, I was talking to a dentist, in fact, in the Pacific Northwest, and he said, hey, yeah, I'm building a 20-home portfolio to provide for my retirement. It'll replace my income as a dentist. And he was really, he sounded happy at first, but as I drew him out, he said, yeah, I'm pretty miserable, actually. I actually was on the phone just now with painters between my dental exams. And in the evenings, I'm screening tenants and it's driving me nuts. And he said, I'm only on house number three of 20 and I don't think I can keep this up. And so I said to him, I said this, why are you working harder than you need to, to make less than you could? You would probably be better off investing passively with a great syndicator. And there's lots of people who've come to that conclusion after trying this. Yeah, absolutely. So what's next for you, Paul? 
Yeah, so we are really excited to continue to build the Wellings Income Fund. We're actually closing down our 2019 fund and opening a new fund in 2020. And we're really excited about where we're going. So can you explain a little bit more about how the fund works to us? What, you know, what kind of returns the investors look to get and, and just kind of how it's all put together? Yeah, so we are working with, we spend a lot of time vetting great operators with great track records, and then we open this up to investors. They invest with us, and then we turn around and place that money over a diversified group of assets over several operators in geographies all across the U.S., and we actually get a premium from those operators. In other words, we get a better deal because we're a large investor. So if we bring them, let's say $4 million at once, rather than them getting, you know, 80, $50,000 checks, they get one $4 million check. Well, they're giving us a, a nice premium for that. And we pass that along to the investors. By passing that along to the investors, that basically offsets and hopefully more than offsets our fee because we get a fee for doing all this and a little piece of the profit. We're targeting a cash-on-cash cash return to investors from operations of about 8% annually. We're on track. The first year, we expected to be 5 or 6 We're right on track. We expected to average 8%. And then we expect appreciation in the range of 6 to 10%, probably 7% or more. So we're actually thinking that the total return to investors we're projecting is 15% annually or higher. Awesome. And how long are they investing their money for? What's the, what's the whole, or does it just yeah. vary by the deal? It's, you know, there's 39 deals in our fund right now. It'll vary from a one and a half, maybe a one and a half year hold all the way up to a 10 year hold. But the total time frame on the fund is about 10 years. Now, do the investors appreciate the, the same tax benefits investing in yeah. your fund? As so, and the, the question I'm, I'm getting to is basically, is 15% from you in, in all reality more than 15% in the stock market because of the tax advantages associated with it? Yeah, my friend Michael Blanc did a wonderful analysis of this and he showed how, you know, 15% with us is closer to something like 20 or 22% in the stock market or even more because the tax savings are all flowing through the LLC, flowing through the syndication to the investor. So the investor gets the same tax savings that they would with investing actively on their own. And honestly, if the American people knew how little commercial real estate investors pay in taxes. I think we'd have another tax revolt. <laughs> so how did you decide to switch your, I mean, I know that you said at the time you thought apartments were slightly overheated and that's why you decided to expand into self-storage and mobile home parks. But can you elaborate a little bit more on specifically why you chose those asset classes and what you like so much about them? Yeah, absolutely. I wish I had more time to explain this, but basically self-storage in mobile home parks, unlike apartments right now, generally have a whole lot of mom and pop owners. For example, mobile home parks, we believe that about 39 or 40,000 
of the 44,000 parks in America are owned by mom and pops. A lot of those are greatly located. They're in the path of growth, but they're just not, you know, the, these mom and pop operators don't have the desire or the knowledge or the resources to really, really improve that net operating income and that value formula. And so by acquiring assets from them, improving the asset dramatically, like taking it up to a franchise type level, you know, getting policies, procedures, adding, you know, additional income sources, like adding U-Haul at a self-storage facility or adding paid parking at a mobile home park, let's say a paid boat RV parking or other things you can do. We dramatically increase the net operating income, but we're also able to compress the cap rate because if you can put together a portfolio of these type of assets and sell it to a REIT, they will pay a pretty significant premium. And so if you can buy at a 7% cap rate and sell at a 5% cap rate, that's about a 25% increase in the value of the asset, but a, perhaps a 70% increase in the value of the equity just from having the right seller and the right buyer. And that's not including all the increase in the net operating income, which drives your income and your appreciation up even further. Now in these mobile homes, and I know you're not the actual operator, but I'm right. sure you're very familiar with the operations. In, in these mobile home parks, are they owning the, the physical mobile homes or are they seller financing those out to the occupants? No, their desire is to not own any mobile homes. And so when they take over a park, they're looking for those all to be individually owned. It's a great model because you're basically, you're, you're sharing the risk. You're actually cooperating with the tenants who are actually owning the home on your land. And that's why on average, well, they take much, much better care of these homes than they would if they were owned by the mobile home park owner. So when the park owner does own homes, they as quickly as possible try to sell them to the tenants. And there's actually financing. You know, Warren Buffett, the world's most successful investor is involved. He's got a company called 21st Mortgage, which actually finances mobile homes up to, I believe, up to 30 years old. And he gives them 100% financing. It's amazing. Oh, nice. So my, my last question on the topic, what socioeconomic trends do you see that are pushing mobile home parks and self-storage facilities to be in such high demand? Yeah. So to answer that quickly, the self-storage, you know, does really well in a bad time because people are downsizing and they need a place to store their stuff. They do really well in good times because people are filling up their Amazon or Walmart carts and they need a place to store their stuff. And so that trend, you know, it's funny, it's only happening in America and a little bit in Canada. There's, there's virtually no self-storage anywhere else in the world at this time. I don't know. To me, that would be a speculation to invest in self-storage in another country. We won't talk right. about that. Mobile home parks, you know, they're the last rung on the ladder down except under a bridge. And so if you can't afford a home, you might be able to afford an apartment or a rental house. If you can't afford that, you can probably afford two to three to $400 a month in lot rent and a small payment for a mobile home you know, use mobile home, you can pick up sometimes for $5,000 or less even. If you can't afford that, you're probably going to be under a bridge. 
And so, I mean, there are just one example of several. There are 10,000 people turning 65 every day, Sterling, and six out of 10 have less than $10,000 saved for retirement. Yeah, but, that's, a, that's a whole nother episode right there, the retirement I crisis. Know, right? <laughs> Let's do that. But anyway, the, those people often have home equity and they can afford to trade that home equity in for a nice mobile home and live for a very small monthly lot rent in a nice mobile home park. And those are the type of parks we're investing in. You know, the mobile home parks are the only asset class that has a shrinking supply and an increasing demand every year. Oh, wow. Well, I could talk about this all day with you. I know we're, we're coming up on the top of the hour and I want to give you time to finish out. So next we have our radio round where we just have three questions to you know help our listeners get to know our guests a little better. First one is, what's your favorite book? I would recommend The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papazon. It really helps entrepreneurs and investors narrow their focus and become an expert on one thing. You know, and Gary Keller's exemplified that as the, you know, the greatest, most famous real estate broker in the world, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates. So many people do that exact thing. And that's what I'd recommend to people. Yeah, I really like Gary Keller. I like his Millionaire Real Estate Investor and Millionaire Real Estate Agent series. The next question is, what's your favorite quote? My favorite quote is by Paul Samuelson. And speaking of investing versus speculating, he said, investing should be like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. Nice. So our last question is, what's your favorite thing to do when you're not working? Yeah, you know, I really love spending time with my family. Just took a three-day trip to Ohio. Really love to do that. My son and I go on an annual trip fishing up in Ontario. I do things with my daughters as well. As far as what I personally do on top of that, I also enjoy just plunking around on electric guitar. Awesome. Awesome. I didn't see that one coming. Where can our listeners... I used to be a rock star, man. Hey, man, you still are in my mind. Okay, right. <laughs> where, totally kidding. where can our listeners find you? Yeah, they can find us on Bigger Pockets or at our podcast, How to Lose Money. Best way to get a hold of me is at our website, wellingscapital.com. That's W E L L I N G S C A P I T A L, wellingscapital.com. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thanks so much for coming, Paul. I learned a ton. I know our listeners are going to as well. And we really look forward to hearing from you again sometime soon. Thanks, Sterling. It was great being on here. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.